You know, Derek and I have been taking us through this series called This Is Us. Looking back over 20 years at messages or themes or events that have shaped who we are, that have defined who we have become as a people. And, uh, you know, we're, we're celebrating what God has done, but we're also saying that we want to go even deeper into the future. Uh, today is going to be a little different. A couple of weeks ago was a little different than we initially planned. I had to go to Tennessee uh, to help Pam and was uh, not able to, to really get together with Derek. So Derek bailed me out and did the message by himself a couple of weeks ago. Um, this week, Derek has been up at Asbury Seminary all week long. I don't know how many of you even know this, but Derek is working on his master's and will be finished by the end of the year. Uh, so, Derek, we, uh, we celebrate your progress in that. Um, and so I said to him, let me just repay you the favor and let me just take this one. Um, I, I want to bring you a message this morning that um, is not necessarily an easy message, but it's a message that's profound. It's a message that's powerful. It comes right out of God's Word in Jeremiah 2. It's a message that I first preached in 2001. But it's a scripture that God has brought us back to over and over again over the years. Uh, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them, to Jeremiah 2. I'm going to start in verse 5. And I want to read down through verse 13. This is what the Lord says. What fault did you find, did your fathers find in me, that they would stray so far from me? They followed worthless idols... And became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt? Who led us through the barren desert? Through a land of deserts and rifts? A land of drought and darkness? A land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim. And look, send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. This passage begins with God reflecting on the early days of his relationship with Israel. One of God's favorite images for Israel was as his bride. God pictured their relationship as as a marriage. The two lovers totally committed to one another to be in covenant relationship together. 
Like a faithful husband, God went into Egypt and rescued Israel out of the hands of the Egyptians. He, he led her through the wilderness and into the promised land, the land of plenty and abundance, where God poured out blessings on the people. He was their God. They were his people. They worshipped him. They proclaimed him as the one God of the universe. In a world of pagan religion, where there were many, many, many gods, Israel dared to proclaim there is one God and his name is Jehovah. This was the relationship between God and Israel. But over the years, Israel had become a restless bride, no longer satisfied to to let God provide for her every need. So instead, she began to turn to the idols of the nations around her. They were idols, pieces of wood or stone. They were completely lifeless, and yet they were tangible. They were tangible. You could take them into your hands. You could hold them. You could control them. You could manage them. You could put them up when you didn't want them and take them out when you did. They were concrete. They, they didn't ask for anything in return. They didn't ask for relationship. They didn't ask or demand anything in return. They were just there. And though they were lifeless, Israel began to find that they were very convenient. They were very comfortable. And so Israel began slowly at first, but increasingly over the years, to turn away from God and toward these idols. Now, by the time Jeremiah came along, Israel was at one of the lowest points in her entire history. Uh, Not only were the people wicked, but the priests were wicked. The leadership was wicked. They, They were placing idols inside the temple of God. They were actually sacrificing babies to the god Baal, the god of Canaan. And so God raised up Jeremiah to to give his people this word. How would you have liked to have been in Jeremiah's shoes? Wasn't a great time to be a prophet, I can tell you that. Uh, And Jeremiah didn't want it. I mean, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, partly because he wept truly from the the deepest place of his soul over the people of Israel, but partly over himself. God, why did you call me to do this? Why did you call me to speak your word to a people who don't want to hear it? So Jeremiah was a reluctant prophet, but God raised him up. And he gave him this word that we just read. And as I said in the beginning... God begins by reflecting on Israel's days of faithfulness. There's almost a sense in which God is trying to to draw her back to her first love, remind her of what it was like when they were lovers. But at some point, God begins to, you can can sense it in the passage, God begins to, to realize that they are too far gone. And so his longing to restore her first love turns to anger and even wrath. As God cries out, he says in verse 10, Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there's ever been anything like this. A nation changing its gods. Not only that, but exchanging a living God for an idol. He's saying to them that not even the pagans change their gods. And their gods aren't even gods. But you have the living God and you have... 
You have exchanged the living God for a worthless idol. And then God gives Jeremiah the, the really two metaphors at once in verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have turned from me the spring of living water and have dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, first of all, I want to be sure that we know what these words mean. Living water in Scripture means water that is moving, water that is fresh. It's a water that is found in a river or even better yet, at a spring. So living water is constantly bringing new and fresh water. It is the source of water. I mean, here's a great picture of a spring. And this is, this is what a living water is. Living water is uh, water that's constantly refreshing itself with new life, new water. Now, a cistern, on the other hand, was altogether different. I don't know if any of you grew up on a farm or grew up in the the rural part of the world where maybe there were cisterns still around. I I actually got fascinated with cisterns when I was in Israel the very first time. Uh, These cisterns in Israel are amazing. And everywhere we went, we kept seeing cisterns that were thousands of years old. And and Pam Pam was just laughing at me. I was just all constantly taking pictures of cisterns. Here's one. Uh, This is actually in the garden tomb where Jesus was crucified and buried. This is a relatively small opening, but look at what's inside of it. This thing is huge. Uh, A cistern is essentially a man-made pot in the ground where someone has dug out the ground and filled its sides with brick or with plaster and it's meant to hold water. Sometimes they use it for grain and things like that. But typically the most precious thing was water because you got to remember that the, the Middle East is an arid land. It's a dry land and water was precious to them. And so when God talks to them about himself being the the spring of living water and they turning to cisterns, they know exactly what God's getting at because they were very, very aware of what a spring of living water was and how precious and rare it was and how common cisterns really were. And, and, And so it becomes really obvious what God is trying to communicate to them. God is saying to them, in essence, this. Uh, I am your source of blessing. I am your source of prosperity. I am your source of life. But you're not satisfied with me. Instead, you have gone your own way. You have dug your own cisterns. Now, I, I wish I could somehow help you to see how absurd this picture is in Jeremiah 2. Because what you have is literally a picture of a group of men or people that are digging out a cistern, putting all of their hope and confidence in the cistern when there is a spring of living water right beside them. And instead of drinking constantly at the spring of living water, they're over here digging out their own cisterns. That's the image that that God wants them to see because he wants them to see that he is enough, that he is their source of life. And these cisterns are nothing but idols. They are things of this world that they're turning to to find what only God himself can truly give. Now, it's so important this morning that we pull this message out of the ancient times in which it was written and bring it into today so that it relates directly to you 
into me. We, we may have a tendency to kind of congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back because we don't have idols made of wood sitting in our homes. At least I hope you don't. I hope none of us have little idols on our mantles that we pray to before we go to bed or when we get up in the morning. You know, we're too sophisticated for idols, right? Uh, we're, we're too advanced. We're too civilized to be an idol-worshiping people. I want to tell you this morning, beloved, idols come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And they are much more common than you think. An idol is anything that I look to other than God that will give me, I hope and believe, will give me security, will give me um, my identity, will give me life, will direct me in my paths, will help me uh, to give me what I need to make decisions. This is what an idol is. Can I just throw up a list of some common idols? This is nowhere near exhaustive. But these are some of the most common idols out there. Money and stuff. Job or work. Success. Titles and status. Spouse or kids. People pleasing. Entertainment. Pleasure. Government. Politics. Religion. Religion itself can be an idol. Uh, When I begin to look to these things for security, when I begin to to discern that deep in my soul, these are the things that give me security. These are the things that shape my identity. These are the things that I look to to fill my soul. These are the things that I look to to help me make my decisions. I begin to realize very quickly that we're just as capable of digging cisterns today as the Israelites were 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, when Jeremiah was preaching to them. I, I just want to say that ultimately, there's some questions that we have to ask that really would help us to determine what we truly worship. Uh, again, we might look at, let's go back to the previous one real quickly. We might look at these things and say, yes, okay, I get it. I, I know that these things can tend to draw me in and they can, but I don't worship these things. This is not what I worship. But again, let me ask these questions and now go to the next slide. Answer these questions and you will know what you truly worship. Where do I look for life? What defines or who defines my identity? Where do I find comfort and security? Who or what guides my decision making? I'll tell you this morning that the answer to those questions will tell you what you truly worship. Will tell you where you are truly putting your hope and your confidence. And where you ultimately believe you will find life. That's what a cistern is. That's what an idol is. I want you to understand this morning that there are several problems with cisterns. One of them, as I said earlier, is that the, the, the water that's in a cistern is of an inferior quality to that of a spring. I mean, a spring is fresh. It's constantly producing fresh water. A cistern can only hold what's put in it. And the problem with that is that other things sometimes get put in it. Animals walk by and fall in it, or dirt gets swept into, through the hole. And before you know, it's not very fresh anymore. In fact, in fact, it's barely drinkable. You have to take it out and boil it so that you can even drink it. A cistern just doesn't have the same quality of life. 
Uh, one of the phrases that I love in the New Testament is a little phrase that says that Jesus came to give us life that is truly life. Life that is truly life. A cistern may give you pleasure. It may give you some sense of significance. But it can't give you life that is truly life. And yet we find ourselves tempted daily to turn to other things other than God to give us what we most want and need. Now, why in the world would we turn to a cistern when there's a perfectly good spring right here constantly providing fresh water? Can I just make some suggestions here? This may not be true for you. Maybe one of these is. But for some people, it's fear. It's a fear that, yes, God has provided in the past, but will he provide in the future? Doubt. I mean, is God truly good? Can I know that he is good and that he has my best interests in mind? Control. Boy, this is a big one, isn't it? Control. Just going back to last week's message, we like the shallow waters because we're standing on our own two feet and we're still in control. We fear the deep because we're no longer in control. We're at the mercy of the river. We go where the river takes us. We have given up control when we go into the deep. That's also why we turn to idols. Because like I said earlier, you can take out an idol and when it's convenient, put it away when it's not. You're in complete control. You manage it. What about pride? I don't want to depend on anybody else. I want to do it my own way. My way is the best way. Or selfishness. I don't want living water. I want the cistern. And I want it now. Rebellion. In anger. Disappointment. We turn on God. Say, God, I can't trust you. I'm going to do my own thing and go my own way. These are some of the reasons why we often, often find ourselves turning away from the spring of living water and pursuing cisterns. But here's another thing about cisterns. God, God brings this out in the passage. Cisterns are leaky. See, a cistern's just a big hole in the ground, and they put these bricks and plaster in, but, you know, the earth kind of moves sometimes with earthquakes, or the soil shifts as it gets dry or as it gets wet or as it gets hot or cold, and, and all of that can affect the cistern. It begins to crack, and before you know it, you're pouring water in, but water keeps flowing out as fast as you pour it in. And so cisterns, you're having to constantly pour energy into keeping them uh, going and keeping them whole. And, and the same is true for a cistern in life or for an idol. The thing about idols is we keep pouring more of ourselves into them, thinking one day they're going to fill us up, only to realize I'm just getting emptier and emptier. I'm just getting emptier and emptier. Blaise Pascal, one of the most brilliant men to ever live, said hundreds of years ago, well, this is a quote that's been attributed to him, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person that only God can fill. Uh, the truth of the matter is I, I couldn't find any evidence that Pascal actually said those words. But here's what he did say. And this is where I think that phrase comes from, the God-shaped void. This is what Pascal said, the brilliant mathematician. What else does this craving, this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, 
of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, though none can help, since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. It's true, there is a God-shaped void in every heart. And whatever you try to put in that void, it will never fit and it will never fill you up. Because there is something, here's the thing, God created you and me for himself. He created us for himself. And we will ultimately never find the deepest satisfaction and joy in anything before God. So these cisterns are leaky. And so are idols. But there's another thing about them. Uh, They're they're also deceptive. You know, the truth of the matter is... uh, we human beings are, we can turn almost anything into a cistern, right? I mean, we have an incredible capacity for turning almost anything into a cistern or an idol. But what we have trouble with is acknowledging that it's an idol. We rationalize, we compromise, we even bargain with God. God, if you do this, I'll do that. You know, we'll do anything to hang on to that idol or that cistern and not completely give it up and say, Lord, I am all yours. Almost anything. And that, they're, 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 they're deceptive. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are things in my life where I, I've been holding on to things that I knew would not give me life, and yet I still clung to them. Why? That's insane, right? Why would we keep pouring ourselves into something that we know is just going to make us empty, leave us even emptier than we are? Because of the deceptive nature of an idol. Uh, Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 44. This is another haunting passage. I, I, I just want to read part of it for you. Uh, Isaiah, well, this is really the Lord speaking through Isaiah. And the Lord, again, is just dismayed that his people would turn from him to an idol. Uh, God is, in essence, saying here, this is insane. It's insane. Think about what an idol is. Think about what you're doing when you worship an idol. This is what God says. A man cuts down cedars or perhaps takes a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But then he also worships or fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half the wood he burns in the fire over which he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. See this fire. And then from the rest of the same wood, he he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and he worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. These people know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see. Their minds closed so that they cannot understand. No one stops to think or has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, 
Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? That's the deceptive nature of an idol. An idol promises so much, but delivers so little. An idol draws us in, but once it's got us, it will hold us close, and it's difficult to turn away. And so we find ourselves holding things in our right hand, knowing that something is wrong here, but unwilling to call it what it is. It's an idol. It's a cistern. It's something that's keeping me from the source of life. The most tragic thing about a cistern is simply that they distract us from the real thing. They distract us from the spring of living water. You see, Jesus would say several hundred years later, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters because whatever you truly treasure is going to have your heart. And either it's going to be God or it's going to be something else. Now, here's the most incredible thing. What he's really saying there is something's going to have your heart because you were made for worship. You were made for something outside of yourself, so you're going to worship something. It's either going to be God or it's going to be something else, but you can't serve two masters. And when this thing begins to distract me away from the, the, when this thing distracts me away from the spring of living water, it becomes an idol. And the most tragic thing is that it keeps me from drinking at the spring. Keeps me from drinking at the spring. I'll tell you, there are seasons in our lives where we are particularly vulnerable to cistern digging. Times of crisis, times of difficulty. We may begin to panic and we we may try to take things into our own hands and and make something happen because we've been distracted from the spring of living water. Or sometimes it's just the opposite. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm most vulnerable, not in times of crisis. I, I find it easy to turn to God when I'm in crisis. When I struggle is when I'm coasting, when I'm doing really well, when everything's going great and things are wonderful, I begin to trust in my own resources, my own strength, and I find myself drifting, sometimes in almost undiscernible degrees, further and further away from the spring of living water, and I don't even realize I've left it until I'm consumed with the cistern. Can I just be really transparent with you and tell you that one of those seasons is transition? I can tell you that in the middle of transition, and please don't hear this, I'm not asking, I'm I'm not trying to make you feel sorry or pitiful for me. I'm just trying to be really transparent to say that these are the kinds of seasons when we're uh, vulnerable, when you're not sure if if you're here or there. You're you're not sure if you're in this role or that role. You're, You're in transition and everything seems fluid and nothing seems solid. And you begin to find yourself either pursuing things that you think are going to give you security or just checking out and just saying, I'm going to pursue something that will just comfort me. I'm going to pursue TV, entertainment, whatever it may be, to just get me away from the realities of what I'm going through. These are the kinds of ways that we can get sucked into digging cisterns. And I don't mind telling you, I'm just going to confess to you before God and everybody else. I said earlier, I was praying for you last night. Truth is, I was only praying for you half the time. Because I was praying for me the other half. 
Uh, I've said this many times over the years, but I, I, I can truly say I don't believe I've ever brought you a message that didn't get preached to me first. And this is one that, quite frankly, last night, the Lord just kind of opened my eyes and said, can I just show you some of your cisterns? And if I were to sit here and begin to list them out, many of you would probably be tempted to dismiss them and say, well, that's, that's nothing. I mean, that's nothing. But can I just make a strong statement here? A strong statement is this. It doesn't matter how big or how small it is. It doesn't matter how evil or even how good it may be. If it draws me away from the, from the spring of living water, it is a danger to my soul. And the Lord began to say, let me show you some of your cisterns. And I, I've realized that I, this is a season where I'm constantly battling distraction, constantly moving in different directions and trying to figure out where to go. But I want to tell you that that last night and through the night and this morning, I just began to say, Lord, let it, I, I, I'm, I'm done with cistern living. I'm done with cistern living. I want to get back to the spring of living water. I renounce the things of this world that distract me from you because I want to come fully and totally to the spring of living water. Is there anyone who wants to join me? And I mean that seriously. Is there anyone who would say, yes, I am tired of cistern living? I'm tired of, I want the real thing. Can I give you some good news? Jesus wants to give you a good thing. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that abundantly. God is not a killjoy. God does not call you to the spring of living water to drown you. He's calling you to the spring so that you might have life that is truly life. If you've never tasted of that water, you've never tasted life that is truly life. You've tasted only what's temporary, only what's a part of this world. And there are many things, as I said, that are good in this world. Many things that are great. They are gifts of God. But when they begin to take over that place of his throne in my heart, where only God is meant to dwell, they can become cistern. God's saying, I want to give you life in that abundantly. I, I really, I was moved this week as I came to this passage again. I mean, I, like I said, I've preached on it many times over the years. But one of the things that just absolutely grabbed my heart this week was the emotion of this passage. And I want, I want to ask you to listen one more time. I'm going to read this one more time. I don't want it on the overhead. I don't want you to turn your Bibles. Matter of fact, you may want to close your eyes. But I want you just to listen for a moment. And I want you to listen to the emotion in God's heart, in God's words, as he gives this word to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me? That they strayed so far from me. They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord? who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives. I brought you into a land that was fertile to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made it detestable. 
The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring these charges against you again, declares the Lord. I will bring these charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look. Send to Kadar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are no gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens. Shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. You see, I have a feeling that for some of you, maybe one of the biggest challenges is deep in your soul you feel like God doesn't truly care. God's busy running the universe. He doesn't know what's going on in my life. He doesn't know the state of my soul. God is cold and distant. My prayer this morning is that you will hear in those passages that God is passionate for you. These are not the words of an uninterested bystander. These are not the words of a cold and distant God who does not care. These are the words and this is the heart of a God who passionately loves his people. I want you to understand this morning that, that God's love and yes, even his anger grow out of a fierce jealousy for you. He loves you with all of his being. He longs for you to be in relationship with him. And you want to know why he gets angry? It's not because he wants to destroy you. He's angry because he loves you so passionately. Do you understand that if he didn't care, if he had no love, he wouldn't care, right? I mean, if someone rejects you that you don't care about, it doesn't mean anything to you, right? But when someone that you love with all your heart betrays you, that's what is most painful because you care. And I want you to hear this morning that God cares. God is passionate for you. God is longing to show you the depth of his love. You see, God, uh, he, he cares so much because he's so deeply invested. God formed you in your mother's womb. God breathed life into your spirit and gave you life. God revealed himself to you as Lord. He sent his son to die for you, to pay for your sins. He has longed to give you life that is truly life. And so you want to know something? This is is amazing to me. God has emotions. God hurts when we reject him. God hurts when we pursue cisterns. God is angry when we turn against him and pursue other things because he is so deeply invested in you. Would you hear this morning the heart of your God who is longing for you to come to the spring of living water? 
Do you remember the conversation Jesus had with the woman at the well? Here was someone who had been looking desperately for life. She'd had five different husbands, and the man she was living with was not her husband. But after all that, she is even emptier than when she began. She is now just a shell of a person. And I want you to know that ultimately, that's what cisterns do. That's where cisterns leave us. But hear the invitation of Jesus to that woman and to you this morning. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water of this world, cistern water, if you will, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of living water welling up to eternal life. I'm going to ask the prayer team to come and make your way to the front because I want to invite you this morning to respond. Uh, My prayer all morning has been that you would hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you. And right now, I know that there are, there are some in our midst right now who deep in your soul know that you have never drunk from that water. You may have drunk from the water of religion. You may have drunk from the water of church. You may have drunk from the water of trying to be good. But you know it isn't getting you anywhere. You know it isn't filling your soul. You're thirstier now than you've ever been. And I want to say to you this morning, there is a spring of living water here. Now, Jesus is inviting you to come and drink. There's a, there are others of us, many of us, myself included, who have drunk from that fountain of living water, that spring of living water. But we have clearly drifted and we found ourselves digging cisterns. And for some of you this morning, the Lord has begun to reveal to you the precise nature of those cisterns. I want to invite you to come and repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Forgive me for chasing after this cistern. I want to come back now, today, to the spring of living water. And some may have just simply come here and you're just weary, you're tired, you're thirsty. And God's word to you this morning is just come and drink. Don't look somewhere else. Don't chase after something else. Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest.